Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. Hey folks, this week's episode is a live event, and as with most live events, uh, this was recorded as part of Stumptown Stories, a Portland and Oregon history collective that I am a part of. And we bring together, of course, podcasters, writers, local history popularizers, and we talk about history at Portland's historic Jack London Bar. And this episode is all about a misplaced time capsule in Portland, Oregon, that Teddy Roosevelt planted and is nowhere to be found. And I also get into time capsules in general. Uh, because it's a live event, uh, when I was talking, there were images on the screen behind me. This is a podcast. You will not be able to see the images, but uh, you're smart. You can figure it out. Something else. Um, episode 100 is coming up, and episode 100 is going to be a Q&A. Uh, if you have questions for me, go to interestingtimespodcast.com, uh, click on the contact link, write me a question, and I will answer it for episode 100. So go do that. All right, guys. Enjoy. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Jack London Bar. My name is Doug King Crispin. I'm the resident historian for Kick-Ass Oregon History. We have a website called orhistory.com, and I am so very pleased to be able to emcee tonight's Stumptown Stories, which is stories about Portland and Oregonish. I want to introduce our first speaker this evening. He's going to be contributing to our general theme, which is hidden stuff in Oregon. Some of it worth riches, some of it maybe not. But Joe Strucker writes all about town. He has an amazing history podcast called Interesting Times, and he has a fantastic ebook on Polybius, which is a video game that makes you puke and go insane, designed by the NSA. So if you haven't purchased that, you absolutely should. And without further ado, I would like to introduce our first speaker at Sometimes Stories, Joe Strucker. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate it. All right, hello, folks. Thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, tonight, I want to talk about a uh, lost time capsule that is out there somewhere in Portland, Oregon, that uh, was supposed to get picked up in 2003 and didn't quite get recovered. Uh, but also time capsules in general, how long we've been doing them to deal with them, uh, you know, whether or not they're actually effective for historians and archaeologists, that sort of thing. But humans, they had buried things to find uh, for literal thousands of years. And when I say literal thousands of years, I mean actual, like, literal thousands of years since, like, ancient Sumeria time. Uh, there are structures dating all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia that often held bricks that were known as foundation inscriptions. And foundation inscriptions are, like, the precursor to time capsules. Um, they, aren't, they don't have a date on them. Uh, they're not supposed to be, like, open at this year, blah, blah, blah but they are there in the event that somebody eventually finds that building and they're digging it up and they can read something and they can find some stuff about that building and the people who made it. Um, behind me, the image is of a uh, foundation inscription from, a, uh, from Persia. 
and it's a foundation inscription uh, that was put in during the reign of Darius, or Darius, I've never quite known how to pronounce that, the first. Um, I have no idea what it says, because I cannot read ancient tablets. Uh, but yeah, having a building with uh, a cornerstone that had inscriptions and um, stuff in it for future generations, uh, that is a very, very long established tradition. You know, people putting in a little box of things, it's kind of like a how you doing to a hypothetical Indiana Jones. But the first modern time capsule, uh, that's much more recent. Uh, that goes all the way back to uh, 1876. Uh, probably the first modern time capsule is something called the Century Safe uh, from Philadelphia. And it was sealed in, obviously, 1876. Uh, it was supposed to be sealed for 100 years, and it included a lot of memorabilia about America. And uh, the idea is that you would open up this safe on the bicentennial. And it's, I think, debatable about whether or not this is a time capsule or not, because when you think time capsule, usually think of something that's buried. Usually think of something that's incorporated into architecture. Uh, the century safe, however, was just like a safe. It was like big metal furniture with like doors and stuff that you could open, um, which is unlike, you know, unlike what we now think is a time capsule, but it's, it's kind of a precursor. But like definitely the first actual real time capsule is it from 1900 uh, from the World's Fair and credit for you know, that, an architecturally incorporated, uh, an architecturally incorporated enclosure filled with various objects set to be open at a certain date. Uh, that is, that credit is usually given to Detroit Mayor William C. Mar uh, Mayberry, uh, and that was part of the World's Fair at the time. And this was way back in the ancient age when Detroit was like, you know, not a Mad Max in Hellscape of Sadness. <laughs> when they were having like big parties that they were inviting people to. Um, but what we're all about today is Portland's Lost Time Capsule. And shortly after that 1900 World's Fair uh, that was masterminded by their mayor, William C. Mayberry, William C. Mayberry, Portland was also poised to have a great big shindig that lots of people were supposed to show up to. And that was the Lewis and Clark Exposition. Uh, the Lewis and Clark Exposition, it happened in 1905. Uh, it was on the a centennial of the uh, Lewis and Clark Expedition. They decided to celebrate with an exposition. Uh, if you've been to Stumptown Stories before, I am sure that you have heard me or more than one of my colleagues go on about this thing. It was huge. Um, but there was a big ramp up to this. Uh, it's not like they did everything in 1905. Uh, there was all kinds of like pre-planning and strategizing and funding and hyping it. And one of the things that they really, really wanted to do was make sure that the World's Fair was kicked off by the president. They wanted to make sure that Teddy Roosevelt was there at the very, very, very start, two years before any tourist actually showed up in the stump town. So, to start the fair, go all the way back to 1903, two years before the event actually takes place, and Roosevelt shows up in Portland, and they are building a monument to Lewis and Clark. Uh, you might have seen it. If you live in Portland, Oregon, uh, and you have been in Washington Park near the Rose Garden, you've probably seen a column sticking out of the ground uh, that is a monument to Lewis and Clark. Have you guys seen that? Yes, okay. There's nodding in. Mm -hmm. Teddy Roosevelt laid the cornerstone for that thing. 
So in an Oregonian article from 1902, a bit before it was actually built, it said, in the base will be a cavity for a copper box in which will be deposited memorials and relics and other things of historical interest. And later on, the next year, in 1903, Teddy Roosevelt, he came to Portland, Oregon, and, uh, well, first he came to Pendleton, and then he came to Salem, and then he came to Portland, he did a whole grand tour of the state. Um, and he used, apparently, a silver trowel with an ivory handle to cover the box with concrete before encasing it in granite. Um, the cache included wood from an organ fir used to build a Spanish war vessel, uh, the Ring of Christina, a two-cent stamp, pennies made from 1900 to 1903, the Portland City Charter, the 29th Annual Report of the Public Schools of Portland, a piece of rock salt, <laughs> because, you know, in 2003, people might have forgotten what salt was, um, and a portrait of Roosevelt. Um, so Teddy Roosevelt, he completes this thing. Uh, he lays a cornerstone of this thing, he covers it with concrete, and that in turn is covered with Snake River granite. Uh, at the time, they do not call this thing a time capsule. Uh, it's actually kind of weird to read old newspaper articles at the time because nobody knows what to call this thing. Um, They're calling it the box. They're calling it the cornerstone filled with objects. Uh, nobody has invented the word time capsule yet. Um, the word time capsule would not be invented until uh, a bit later on. Uh, that term would be coined in 1938 uh, by G. Edward Pedre for his Westinghouse time capsule, a project uh, from the 1939 World's Fair. And that's Teddy Roosevelt, by the way. I know. Um, by the way, I think there's like a really, really good case to be made for Teddy Roosevelt being probably one of the sexiest U.S. presidents. Like, Johnson. I, Johnson, oh God, no, no, no. Yeah, like I think, okay, he doesn't beat, he doesn't beat Obama or JFK, uh, but he's up there. He's up there. Yeah. Like, look at, look at that steely determination. I know. So, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, he laid the cornerstone. Uh, they put the monument over the cornerstone. And this thing needs to just kind of incubate there for 100 years. So, fast forward 100 years. And it's just kind of hanging out there, in the ground, traveling through time at a linear rate, <laughs> at the exact same rate that everything else travels through time. And in 2003, it's time to crack this thing open. So in 2003, uh, Portland wants the opening of this centennial time capsule uh, to be a big to-do. So, uh, they want all kinds of things to happen. For instance, they want Teddy Roosevelt's great-grandson to come to Portland uh, to replicate the speech that Teddy Roosevelt gave when he buried it, and also to be there and go through the various objects that were buried. Um, that guy's name is Teddy Roosevelt IV. Uh, that's Teddy Roosevelt IV, by the way. Oh my god. Uh, very much, like, less blue steelish than his great-grandfather. Uh, yeah, those, like, steely-eyed sort of pince-nez wearing, like, big game hunting, you know, war starting jeans did not, did not pass Park down. National Park Service. Okay, and the National Park Service. Yes, Heather, you're absolutely right. They did more things than just, like, kill people and large, dangerous animals. 
Anyways, um, TR4 Portland, TR4, Kid Rosenforth, <laughs> he was about to come to Portland, and the Oregon Historical Society wanted to make sure everything was ready for him. Uh, they wanted to make sure that the time capsule was there, and accounted for, and he could be there and give the speech, and they would crack it open and go through all the stuff inside, and it would be this great feel-good history moment. But the Oregon Historical Society started looking around the Lewis and Clark Monument, and they were not able to find the time capsule. They didn't know what it was, where it was. The only thing that they really had to go on was accounts from the time that, by the way, were not photographs or detailed diagrams. These were written accounts that described it as the quote unquote cornerstone. So, the OHS put out a call that they couldn't find this thing, and a few stonemasons, they, they volunteered that cornerstone usually meant the northwest corner. They said traditionally in masonry and architecture, uh, that is the cornerstone you should look there. They did, they did not find it. Um, also, uh, a local psychic volunteered uh, to help the Oregon Historical Society find the box. And the psychic said, hey, you know what? Uh, you're actually not looking in the right place. It's actually just north of where the monument is, guys. Um, I could not find out whether or not they followed up on the psychic's advice. Um, I really hope that they did, because that would be cool. Um, and there was a possibility of maybe using radar to find this. Modern archaeologists use radar and other dirt-penetrating technology all the time to actually look at old stuff without kind of like digging into it and despoiling the old stuff. Uh, kind of like, you know, Alan Grant in the first scene of Jurassic Park, where he's looking at the screen, uh, screen at a raptor, and he's like, dinosaurs are birds. And people are like, that's crazy. You guys remember that part? Yeah. yeah, that's a literal real thing that archaeologists and paleontologists do all the time. Um, so they thought, okay, we'll just do that. Here's the problem, though. The Snake River granite that the Lewis and Clark Memorial is made out of is very hard, dense rock. And very hard, dense rock and things like radar don't get along very well. So attempts to actually radar find this whole time capsule just end up butting up against all this rock. Now, people are wondering, where is this thing? We can't find it. What are we gonna do? Um, Teddy Roosevelt IV, that guy, he came to Portland, he gave the speech that his great-grandfather did, and instead of finding a new time capsule, the Oregon Historical Society had people, had people say, hey, what have you guys got on you at the time? Uh, what is in your pockets and wallets and purposes and that kind of thing? You know what? That kind of stuff is what would have gone into this time capsule 100 years ago. Isn't that interesting, guys? <laughs> By the way, I love the Oregon Historical Society. They're awesome. I, I totally voted for their tax thing, and I'm glad I did. Um, but yeah, it was a bit awkward that they didn't have the time capsule uh, as a ceremonial centerpiece. So, one part of the problem is that remember back when I said that Portland, Oregon, they really wanted the Lewis and Clark Expo uh, to be a big to-do, and funding and planning and all of it took years. Um, and they wanted Roosevelt to be the very first official thing that happened. So Roosevelt shows up in 1902, but that is a full year before the monument was actually seriously constructed, right? Okay, 
So Roosevelt shows up, he lays the cornerstone, then everybody just kind of like forgets about it for a while because there's other shit that they have to take care of. It's only until the next year that they said, okay, maybe we should get that monument column thing actually built. <laughs> and in 1903, that's when it went up. So it is entirely possible that the workers who built that 1903 monument um, were not actually building on the same site as where Roosevelt laid his cornerstone. It is 100% totally possible that they just knew that it was kind of around there, couldn't actually find the cornerstone because it was small and obscure, and it's a rock, and just said, okay, we're gonna put the thing here, fuck it, and built it in sort of the right area. So the only real way to find this time capsule would be to dig up Washington Park. So if anyone, oh, by the way, uh, this has been suggested. Um, the Army Corps of Engineers, um, one of the members of the Army Corps of Engineers said, it would be possible to actually lift up the Lewis and Clark Monument in Washington Park, look around underneath it, and see if you find something that looks kind of sort of time capsule-y. But, but a guy from the OHS at the time said that uh, the Snake River granite, while you know hard and unyielding and everything, does have the potential to crack. And the idea of this thing cracking and falling over on his watch did not appeal to him. So if any of you guys want to go to Washington Park, get a trowel, get one of those like silver trowels with an ivory handle, and like go to work trying to find Teddy Roosevelt's lost time capsule, go for it. That'd be awesome. But you don't have to because, guys, I think there's another issue here. Something else I want to talk about tonight. And that is, time capsules sort of suck. <laughs> like, in the grand scheme of things, in terms of like preserving history, um, time capsules are not good. Um, oh, that's the losing time capsule, I believe. Yeah, that's the column. Yeah, so there are a few issues with time capsules. They don't actually help real historians, or I shouldn't say, I'm a guy with a podcast, and I write for an alt-weekly. I have no business saying real historians. Uh, they, have, they have really not a lot of, um, they really don't help historians, people who are interested in history, or other folks to really understand the past for a couple of reasons. For one thing, time capsules kind of sort of do the opposite of what they're supposed to do, in that instead of preserving the past, they provide a kind of dollhouse, or a sort of, like, you know, diorama, uh, instead of the real thing. They do not have what historians and archaeologists call provenance. That is, the objects inside do not show who used them, or how they were used, or why, or, you know, what kind of location they would have been in. So, you know, let's see the Iceman, you know, just some dude walking on a mountain, and he's got like his bow and his tattoos, and you know, he gets covered by a whole bunch of ice. Uh, yeah, that was an amazing find, because all that stuff that was on his person when he was found was in context. We got this ancient guy, and we were able to see a day, a really particularly bad day, <laughs> because he got covered with a bunch of really cold stuff that preserved him for thousands of years, but we got to see a day into his daily life. Um, 
had there been some sort of like Paleolithic time capsule from the same time, where all of Oxy's stuff, like his axe and his bow and, I don't know, his tattoos, were all sort of inserted into a box, we wouldn't have had the context and we wouldn't have learned nearly as much about him. Uh, also, time capsules often contain ephemera and memorabilia as opposed to information about real life. So ephemera and memorabilia is all well as good. However, a piece of, you know, a piece of like organ fur that was used to make a Spanish ship or a picture of Teddy Roosevelt, uh, they're not going to be as valuable to future historians as, say, somebody's kitchen that has all of their stuff and it shows you maybe what they ate, what had where, what didn't, you know, how they acted, uh, what their diet was like, and what life was like for them. Uh, another issue about time capsules is that they are airtight. They are not airtight or foolproof. They are often buried, uh, and water uh, can seep into wet ground and damage these supposedly useful documents within. So this is a problem with time capsules where even if you do find them, the stuff inside might be ruined. But uh, when I was researching this, uh, I read, uh, okay, there's a guy called William Jarvis and he is like the historian of time capsules. And I want to read you a passage from his paper called Modern Time Capsules, Symbolic Repositories of Civilization. And it's a long quote, but bear with me. By the way, you can make any audience deal with anything by just saying, bear with me enough times. Um, he says, Jarvis says, quote, time capsules then are both archival records and archeological deposits. Time capsules are, at the time of deposit, a sort of instant archeology. span Although by the time a 5,000 year time capsule is retrieved, it might not be considered quite so as acts. The fact that the true time capsule and its indefinitely sealed relative, the cornerstone repository, remember those like ancient Mesopotamian things I was talking about earlier, are deliberately sealed deposits does distinguish them from other archeological sites. One major difference is the possibility that distinctive, typical, and hence valuable wear patterns on artifacts may not be present on a perfect brand new specimen that often find their way in the time capsules. A pocket full of loose change could be more, could be more significant historical evidence than a numismatically pristine proof set. Piety, boulderization, or other more subtle editorial biases will inevitably influence the collection of information media and other artifacts ultimately deposited in a time capsule. Time capsules, unfortunately, cannot be hermetically sealed against the boosterism and public relations puffery sometimes found in local histories and other historical works. Presumably, such biases of information uh, and artifacts tell us something about the senders, although not necessarily in the matter intended at the time of their sealing." Unquote. So, what this guy is basically saying is the same point I made earlier, where wear and tear and use that shows people's daily lives is useful to historians. He's also saying, not in so many words, but I think he's being kind of subtle about it, then you got a lot of local hometown feel-good boosterism about time capsules, and that's what gets in there. Uh, nobody in, say, uh, 1903, 1902 Portland is going to uh, like put something in there about, like, I don't know, how racist Portland was. Or, you know, women not voting. Or something like that. Yeah, there's not going to be anything... Well, somebody mentioned prostitutes. Yeah, there's not going to be anything about vice industry. 
Uh, there's not going to be anything probably about marginalized groups like immigrants. Uh, you are going to get, you are going to get the, um, you know, what he calls puffery of the people who have the resources to make a time capsule. And by the way, William Jarvis, who I just quoted, he really likes time capsules. Like, this dude has written a book and multiple published papers about how awesome time capsules are. And even a fan of time capsules would say, yeah, they kind of suck at this, uh, you know, in this instance. Um, there is one good thing about time capsules, though. Uh, the big uses that they have is that they are ritualistic, um, both with their sealing ceremony, where lots of people come together and they have kind of this, like, secular community ritual where you all get together and seal something away that you think is important. And then, after that, they are a sort of secular community monument to how great your place is. And you can go there and look at the time capsule and have this moment of like continuity. And you can think about both the time it was sealed and the time it will be open, and think of yourself as part of this like long timeline of events with the march of history and all that, and how great it is that you are alive right now. I mean, it gets, it gets lay people interested in history, which is good. I'm taking a condescending tone, which may be unfair, but it really actually does get the general public all jazzed about history, and that is probably never not bad. <laughs> so, the Roosevelt time capsule in Portland, though, I think it is way better as a lost object than as just a time capsule. So, let's, let's pretend that thing had been opened up in 2003. The Oregon Historical Society, they would have gone through a bunch of old stuff and they'd be like, hey, look, some salt. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for putting that in there, guys. Yeah. Look, yeah, picture of Roosevelt. Yeah, mustache. Um, then, Theodore Roosevelt IV, he would have, uh, you know, gone through his great-grandfather's old speech. He probably would have had a long weekend in Portland and uh, then probably everybody afterward would have forgotten about it. It wouldn't have really been, you know, that compelling or interesting or, you know, like intriguing. But instead, by being lost, it gets to be intriguing. Instead of just being this sort of dumb thing filled with salt that we found in 2003, it's a cool mystery and a nifty anecdote. We have a story. So, the next time you're in Washington Park, if you go to Washington Park, uh, keep that time capsule in mind. Remember that there is a lost object underneath your feet somewhere. And if you want to commit a whole bunch of vandalism and deface a whole bunch of public property, get out a shuffle and try to dig up one of Portland's lost chunks of like unknown history, you could potentially do that. I'm not saying you should, don't do that. Actually, definitively don't do that, but you could. <laughs> and the idea is kind of cool. Thank you guys very much. All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, once again, do not forget to go to interestingtimespodcast.com and send me a question for episode 100. Also, go to iTunes to give us reviews and stars and all that. Follow me on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. And again, this is a listener-supported podcast, so if you wanted to go and send us a few dollars every month via Patreon, that would be amazing and excellent of you. Thank you guys very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.